Radio Mano Papachango. get to this really quickly because this is uh, an episode that I wanted to post right away. This is about a movie and a book called Sacred Cow. Uh, My guest is Diana Rogers. She is uh, together with Rob Wolf responsible for both projects. Um, Obviously, they're coordinated projects. And it's about regenerative agriculture. Um, If you don't know what that is, you're going to find out. It's basically approaching agriculture from the perspective uh, that, you know, I approach everything from, which is what is a way of doing this in the modern world that most closely replicates the patterns and relationships that have been established by millions of years of natural evolution. So how can we eat and provide food for ourselves in ways that uh, have the least possible amount of um, damaging effects to the environment, to the animals, and to our own health. Um, it's a very interesting and very important topic. Uh, you know, I've I've had Lear Keith on to talk about uh, vegetarianism and, you know, the myth of uh, vegetarianism is the name of her book. And you know, I, I know there's a lot of passion around this topic, and uh, you know, I, we, Diana and I, sort of made a point at the beginning of our conversation, and, and I'd like to make it again now, so some of you won't abandon this uh, just because you're triggered uh, by it. But I don't see, I, I don't acknowledge the the conflict between meat eaters and vegans and vegetarians, I I don't think that's the real conflict. I think the conflict is between people who want to take food seriously and think clearly about what they're doing and why they're doing it and what effect it has on the earth, on other animals, and on their own health. And I think the people who are vegans or vegetarians generally are very concerned with those issues. In fact, that's probably those issues are are very much a part of why they are vegans and vegetarians. Um, And but there are people coming at it from another perspective who do eat meat and and um, they're motivated by the same things. So we're allies in this. If you know, it's kind of like the abortion debate. It it's a false conflict to say that there are people who are for abortion and people who are against abortion. Nobody's for abortion. Nobody likes abortions, right? So to to have that be the battleground makes no sense because the truth is that people who are against abortions want there to be the fewest possible amount of abortions, which is what everyone else wants too. But what I don't understand is why 
don't the people who are against abortion, why aren't they in favor of, and I know some are, but in general, they're not in favor of sex ed. They're not in favor of contraception. They're not in favor of empowering girls and women to make these decisions and boys and men to participate in these decisions responsibly, intelligently. That's going to reduce the number of abortions. So to frame it as pro-con abortion makes no sense whatsoever. Um, I mean, this is a slightly different debate because what Diane is talking about is that, you know, eating meat and she's not against eating meat at all as, you know, nobody's in favor of abortion. Maybe that was a really bad metaphor. But my point is that these things get framed in ways that create conflict between people who are really kind of natural allies. Um, as you'll hear, Diana is totally in favor of thinking clearly and deeply about the way animals are treated, the kind of lives they live, um, and the, the food that we take into our bodies and, and how we affect the world and so on. So anyway, that's enough of a pitch. Uh, this is a quick and dirty intro because I promised her that I would release this in the next few days, and I am about to leave this beautiful garage I'm sitting in that has a nice strong Wi-Fi signal, and I'm headed off to Crater Lake to hang out with Simon Rex and some other friends, uh, and I will be away from Wi-Fi for the foreseeable future. So I wanted to just uh, slap this together and get it up there. I just uh, looked in my iTunes library for, I did a search for sacred and came up with uh, some interesting music, but it, was, but it was all kind of wild dance kind of world music. And then I searched cow <laughs> and I found this song. I wish I were a cowboy, I think is what it's called. Um, this is my my uh, methodology that you're seeing here, how I come up with this music. I wish I was a cowboy. And it's by a guy named S.E. Rogi. Um, strange song, as you'll hear. Uh, his name, full name is Suleiman Ernest Rogers. He was born in 1926 in Sierra Leone. And... Uh, yeah, he had a band and uh, lived in America, toured in America a little bit, toured in England, died on stage or, or collapsed on stage in Russia and died shortly after, just before his last album was released, which is called Dead Men Don't Smoke Marijuana. Uh, anyway, this song is called I Wish I Was a Cowboy, and it's by S.E. Rogi, who had, you know, he grew up in Africa, but he wished he was a cowboy. Can't blame him for that. The book and the movie is Sacred Cow, and my guest is Diana Rogers. I hope you enjoy this. I hope you enjoy the fact that it is brought to you by nobody except the people who support this podcast. Thank you very much. Those of you who support the podcast, by the way, through my website, have access to all the ebooks that we've put together so far tangentially reading, tangentially talking sex, and tangentially talking drugs. Uh, which are excerpts from various interviews on those topics. And uh, what else do you have access to? I don't know. You have access. Oh, the, oh, the monthly uh, video Roma, where I answer questions from people who are on the forum, and you only get on the forum by joining the thing and all that. So anyway, that's, uh, that's my pitch for joining that uh, support group. 
uh, the Chris support group. <laughs> and uh, yeah, putting thanks for those of you who are on there for uh, throwing some diesel in the van. Really enjoying it. And uh, hope you are too. Hope everything's going well for you out there. This is S.E. Rogie, and I wish I was a goddamn cowboy. When I was a boy, my mother once asked me what I would wish to be. I told her mother the man I would like to be is the type you might hate to see. I would love to be a red cowboy, roaming with my guitar all day, with the prettiest women around me, singing my red cowboy song. Oh, yippee, yippee, yeah. A cowboy, I would love to die. But my mommy got annoyed, she scolded me. Well, what else can I do? But sing, yeah, yippee, yeah, A cowboy I would love to be. My mommy sat down crying. My daddy also sat down looking ever so blue. Then he said, so honey, but that you cannot do. You'd better try to be somebody else. I said I'd rather be a real cowboy than any great somebody else. With my guitar and the women around me, singing my real cowboy song. Oh, yippee, yippee, yeah. A cowboy I would love to die. But my daddy got annoyed. He school at me, well, what else can I do? Oh, sing, yeah, yippee, yeah, yeah, a cowboy I would love to be. Sat down one morning, listening to my daddy and my mommy scolding me. When someone handed me a letter from somewhere, asking me to have a cowboy show. They offered thousands of dollars outright. This makes my heavy heart so light. For now my parents soon became different. And now they joined me in singing my song. Oh, yippee, yippee, yeah. A cowboy would love to die. Well, now so happy was my mommy and my daddy so gay. As they sing the chorus with me, oh sing yeah yippee yeah yeah, I can't buy me love to die. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am very happy to be speaking with Diana Rogers, who is one of the guiding forces behind a new book and uh, a new film called Sacred Cow. Is the film out yet? Uh, it is. We've got about a month left in post-production, but we are going to be offering the a free preview link to the film before it's open to the general public to anyone who pre-orders the book. 
All right. Yeah. Fantastic. And it's you and Rob Wolf doing this, right? Uh, yeah. Rob Wolf is the co-author. Um, the film, he's the executive producer on the film. I'm the producer and director. Great. All right. Well, congratulations. You're, you're coming up to the finish line here on two simultaneous projects. That's a lot of work to coordinate a book and a film at the same time. Yes. it's uh, The book was about four years in the making. Um, and I was uh, chugging along on the book, which was, uh, it, it took us a while to figure out how to organize it. Like you want to make a book about meat and, you know, what do you start with? How do you organize it? And it was actually really complicated. Um, and we had to just keep cutting back and back and back because um, yeah. we wanted to make the book accessible and, you know, something that you didn't need a master's degree to read. Uh, but halfway through the book, um, another vegan film had come out and I was like, oh, this is how young people are taking in information and how many people will I reach with a book versus a documentary that then can be shown in schools, you know, when they're showing these other films just to have a dialogue. So I started working on the film and then writing the book in between working on the film. So now they're both done. Wow. Nice. Well, congratulations. I've, I've done a couple of books, never done a film. I can't imagine doubling down on that kind of work, especially as you're coming down toward the end and you're doing promotion already. So it's like, wow, yeah. good on you. You must have a really healthy diet. <laughs> I do. I do have a healthy diet. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's get into the background. Um, the, the, your projects, both of them are basically, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're basically making the argument that people who think they're doing a favor for the earth or animals by being vegetarians or vegans or whatever are, um, you know, their intentions are great, but they're misinformed about the actual effects of uh, different sorts of diets and that we need to make a very clear distinction between industrial agriculture and regenerative agriculture and other forms of agriculture that are more aligned with natural rhythms of animals and predation and so on. Mm -hmm. Is that more or less what where you're it, coming from? That's exactly the thesis of it. Um, and, you know, I think that for folks that are already in sort of this like ancestral mindset already and understand that, uh, you know, we existed way before the agricultural revolution and like organized religions and civilization and, and all of that kind of stuff. For folks that already have that worldview, this type of farming makes so much sense, you know? Right. Um, and so it's a really easy sell to the ancestral health crowd. Um, uh, because it turns out actually that the most, uh, nutrient dense diet, which is largely, um, you know, animal, animal foods, plus some, you know, vegetables and things like that also happens to be the most sustainable diet. Um, and so, you know, we, we took cow as our main, um, uh, animal that we're focusing on the film, but it, it doesn't necessarily need to be a cow. You know, it might be guinea pigs if you're in Peru. It might be camels in another area. But the idea is that animal products are essential to thrive for human health. Um, and uh, when they're managed well, when they're raised well, they can be a benefit to ecosystem function. 
and that removing them from our food system could actually cause more harm than good. And so we're looking at this from a nutrition lens, an environmental lens, and an ethical lens. And, um, you know, what I had seen is that most people who are talking about um, sustainable diets are really looking at this through the lens of industrial agriculture and not really opening their mind to the fact that maybe the system's broken. Um, mm. And so, so th that version, um, you know, a, a vegetarian version of the industrial food system is, is not a great solution. Um, we already have a population where 70% of Americans are overweight or obese. Um, and pulling meat away from the, these folks is going to just increase their calories, increase their carbs, and increase nutrient deficiencies. And don't, so, but don't uh, vegetarians generally lose weight when they shift to a vegetarian diet? So initially, vegetarians and vegans sometimes do feel better. Um, some of the weight they lose is muscle. Um, and often when you're going vegetarian or vegan, you're cutting out a lot of the types of foods that you would cut out on a paleo type diet. So you're cutting out, um, all the junk foods and the sugars and all those types of things. And so, right. um, but you know, and, and I see a vegan diet more like a fast, um, and initially people feel really good on fast hmm. too. Um, you're, you know, restricting calories and, um, you know, sometimes it's good for the body to have a break. A lot of religions have fast sort of worked into them. Um, but eventually, um, nutrient deficiencies often set in and it can take a long time for them to really show up in lab work. And 85% um, of uh, vegetarians and vegans go back within a year to eating meat again. Yeah. Um, and let's just get at the very beginning of the conversation. Let's uh, establish that None of this, at least, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't take your position to be antagonistic or really um, critical of vegetarians or vegans in the sense that they are concerned for their health, they're concerned for the well-being of the animals, and they're concerned for the well-being of the planet. And I think so much of the the heat around this discussion comes with the assumption of conflict, but actually people like you and Rob and the ancestral health movement. And I mean, you share so many values. You're all concerned about the same thing. You're coming at this uh, with the same motivation, which is to minimize harm, minimize, um, you know, health problems, minimize environmental damage and minimize suffering of animals. So, you know, anyone who's listening to this who happens to be a vegetarian or a vegan, like, please stick with us here because nobody's saying that your motivations are wrong. What we're talking about is sort of downstream from that, right? Totally. I 100% agree. I, um, I totally get it. Um, and I even know people who even get all this, but are still vegetarian and vegan just because they don't want to be eating meat, but they get the environmental impacts right. and they understand the health benefits of it and everything. Um, uh, but I just think a lot of people um, don't truly understand impact on the environment that their food choices have. And so right. um, most people don't live on farms anymore um, or have any, um, any interaction with death. Um, and, uh, and so our 
our fear of death drives a lot of this. Um, we don't want to think about it. We don't want to um, plan for it. Uh, most Americans don't have a will. And uh, we see it as the end in a line instead of a piece in a circle. That's just death, decomposition, and regeneration all just happening constantly. And you need as much life as possible. Um, and what we see in our industrial monocropping system is complete sterilization of an ecosystem and then one plant that then right. becomes an impossible burger or a block of tofu or something like that. Yeah. What, what's going on with these uh, the impossible burger and, and all that? Is it just like a lot of soy or what do you know? What where's that stuff come from? Um, a lot of these plant based so that, you know, impossible burger and beyond burger and, um, you know, others like them. Um, it's they gloss that part over. And um, and even the idea of lab meat, right? It's like, well, I've got this factory and I just made something and then no death happened for it. That's where they jump to. Um, but what they're um, not showing you is all of the inputs. So it's it's pick a monocrop and that's, that's it, right? Mm. And so um, in some cases it's pea protein. In some cases it's, um, you know, soy, heme. Um, but none of them are grown even organically. Uh, and then you, you need high energy processes in order to form them and, and shape them and, you know, have the, these labs running for, with sterile environments. Um, and ironically, Beyond Burger is twice as expensive per pound as organic grass-fed beef. But I don't hear, you know, I keep getting um, a lot of harassment, actually, from people saying, well, I'm elitist because I advocate people eat meat. Um, when it's so expensive to eat meat, but I don't hear people saying you're elitist for, uh, pushing beyond burger or impossible foods, mm. um, impossible foods, um, wants to have IP on our entire food system. I mean, they, they own several IPs. If they were really in it for the, the good of man, um, they wouldn't be, they, they would share their, their knowledge with everybody. IP is what? Intellectual property? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, what's your background? What what got you into all this? Uh, well, I grew up working on farms through high school and college. And um, then uh, I was an art major, actually, in college. Um, and uh, struggled with my diet, found out when I was 26 that I had celiac disease, which answered some of the questions, but not all of them. It uh, wasn't until I read The Paleo Solution by Rob uh, mm. in 2010 that everything got fixed. And I was like, I'm going to change my career. I'm going to, you know, become a dietitian. And I'm going to, you know, so I, I had a career in sort of marketing before that. Um, but meanwhile, my um, soon-to-be ex-husband uh, was, uh, he was an English major in college and then read some books on farming and was like, I'm going to be a farmer. Like, mm. like grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, nowhere near um, agriculture, but um, decided to jump in. And so we have, um, for the last 18 years, lived on organic farms. And um, as I was learning more about nutrition and sort of this ancestral template and diving into everything ancestral around all, all of the worldviews around all of this and reading Daniel Quinn and just, I don't know, just taking a deep dive into all this stuff, I realized that nobody was talking about sustainability in, um, in the context of evolutionary biology. And so 
Um, I thought that there was a great opportunity and Rob has become, um, one of my best friends and, uh, he's also really interested in sustainability. Um, we've done co-presentations so many times at, um, different farms at Polyface. Um, and so I think a lot of times when you fix your health that you've had like a major health crisis, he came into this the same way as I did, um, you know, you fix it and then you're like, well, now what? What am I going to do? Am I going to help other people? I, I I did that. But honestly, full time, just telling people to stop eating processed foods and sugar is not that exciting. Um, so it's good to have a clinic a couple days a week. But um, but I really, you know, I love traveling and um, I love mixing it up and everything. And um, so this was a, sort of a perfect combination of um, you know, a little bit of my art background and my sort of um, ADD needing to be channeled in a way that was outside of a <laughs> an office clinic setting. Right. Um, and so it's just it's been a lot of fun and super creative, um, especially the filmmaking process, but also the book writing process, too. Um, I know you were recently on uh, Anya Katz's podcast, mm-hmm. The Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. Um she was watching your film. I was, I, I don't know. I was doing something else. Um, and she's like, I have to watch this film before I, I speak with Diana. And, um, I looked across at her and she was crying. So I don't know what. And I said, are you okay? And she said, this film is amazing. So, uh, you know, I don't lie about what I've seen and read and haven't, I haven't seen it yet. Um, uh, you sent us an advanced copy. I know it's still being edited, um, but it's obviously very powerful. Um, you know, she was, I, I said, are you okay? And she said, this film is just blowing my mind. And and this is stuff, you know, she's familiar with this material, obviously, you know, um, but based on that, it, it must be a really good film. <laughs> it's a very roundabout way of saying, it's a great film. I haven't seen it, but it's a great film. <laughs> I'm so excited to hear that. Yeah, I've been getting really good feedback. Um, we have Nick Offerman on board as the narrator. I which saw is really that. Fun. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, he's, he's got a great voice too. He has a great voice. He's recognizable by younger people, and he is so into regenerative agriculture. Hmm. Um, he happens to know one of the farmers that we uh, filmed with, uh, James Rebanks, in over in England, um, and uh, there's another film called look and see a film about this uh this guy wendell berry who's a really amazing writer he's been around since the 60s Uh yeah so nick offerman was the executive producer on that film and also Uh just recorded the audio books for wendell berry so the unsettling of america is going to be in audio with nick offerman as the narrator nice Nice. so So nick is a perfect partner for us that's great. Uh, yeah. That's really good. That's going to help you with the the publicity as well. And mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, so just quickly for people who aren't familiar with mm-hmm. all this stuff, what is regenerative agriculture and how is it different from conventional agriculture? Sure. Um, well, both in the book and the film, we start with the nutrition argument just to get that out of the way, because we shouldn't be talking about... Um, a food if it's not even healthy for us to eat, right? And so we kind of dismantle a lot of those like meat will kill you arguments and and just just move that along. Meat is nutrient dense. It's um, it, humans need it to thrive. We're done with that, okay? Um, and now uh, when you move into the environmental argument, um, regenerative agriculture is a type of agriculture that 
um, actually improves ecosystem function. So it um, builds soil health, it um, increases biodiversity, it can increase the water holding capacity of the soil so that when it rains, um, the water doesn't just run off like in cropping. It actually sinks into the soil because there's a deep root system there. Mm. Um, so it's about not disturbing the land too much um, with tillage and things like that. Um, and animals are absolutely an essential piece to a regenerative farm. Um, you should be as closed loop as possible. So um, where I'm living right now, it's an organic vegetable farm, but we can't grow those vegetables without animal inputs. Um, so the broccoli you're buying in the store, or the lettuce or whatever, that was either grown with chemical inputs or biological inputs, animal inputs. Um, and so, uh, if it's organic, I can pretty much guarantee it was animal inputs. Um, and, uh, and that's not just manure, that's blood, that's, um, bones. Um, we, uh, here in, uh, Eastern Massachusetts have access to, um, fish fertilizer that we get from the fishing industry here and, um, the so, so nutrient dense for the soil and for the plants. Um, and so when cattle are managed properly, when they're not just on grass, but moved frequently, like, um, uh, if you were to imagine a herd in the Serengeti of wildebeests, um, they're not standing in one place because of there's, there could be a lion or something, um, out to get them. They're, they're herded together for, for protection, but then they're constantly moving. They're moving for new water and new pasture, but they're also moving to stay away from the predators because they don't want to be just like there to be picked off. Um, and so what they're doing is they're grazing intensely in one area and then they quickly move off. And that area has a nice long chance to rest after the animals have been on it. Um, and then they're, they're also being culled naturally, right, by when a lion does get them. And so um, with electric fencing on cattle ranches – all over the world, we can mimic that behavior and it actually is way healthier for the soil and for the animals. So right. um, instead of the cattle being on one paddock for the entire season, which a lot of grass-fed beef is, uh, t completely overgrazed or sections are undergrazed, um, you can um, divide a large paddock up into many, many smaller paddocks and then move your cattle, uh, keep them bunched in a herd and then move them sometimes several times a day. It just depends on um, on the location. Um, so sometimes it's every other day. It just depends on, you know, how much forage you have, how much it rained before and all that kind of stuff, how many animals you have. Uh, but that movement pattern allows the grass that they just grazed a nice long time to rest. And that's when the roots actually then sh shrink back and um, regrow. And in that process, the um, some of the carbon that was um, brought down through the roots actually gets sequestered in the soil. Hmm. And it's, they've also churned up the soil. So the next time it rains, it's more likely to penetrate rather than run off they've broken up whatever hard crust if is there's on a the hard surface. pan exactly exactly yeah. and that's why we need their hooves on it especially in brittle areas like we went to the chihuahua desert mm. um in mexico and these guys this collective of farmers is regenerating over a million acres back into grasslands which is what it used to be but everyone just thinks it's it's always been desert. It's desert. But that's not the natural state of of the ecosystem there. And um, this one ranch that we went to, it's the it's the definitely the 
the highlight of the film. It's the most beautiful place. And he's now working with bird organizations because now he's got habitat for all these birds that need a place to stop um, mm. on their migration, but they they couldn't stop anywhere before because they didn't have, there wasn't the right habitat. And so um, he's seeing all kinds of rare birds come back and um, there's so much moisture on his farm and he's getting the same exact rain as right next door that looks like desert. It's all because of the impact of cattle and how he's managing them. Are they Mennonites or Amish or anything? There are some um, down there, but they're, they, they tend to be more um, into cropping and not um, as much into cattle ranching and regenerative farming, although he's trying to work with them, too. Um, so but there is a, there is some tension between the traditional farmers that do use a lot of chemicals and the regenerative farmers who are downstream that right, um, sure. really just want healthy ecosystems and everything. So there, there sometimes is a little bit of um, tension uh, within the farming groups and even in middle America, when you're, you know, testing out this, you know, radical idea of re regenerative farming, um, you know, to, to live in rural America and go against the tide is, is ostrich, you know, it, it's like death. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, and so anyway, it's, it's just really interesting. We, we did a lot of filming in Indiana and, um, it can be tense. Um, yeah. The climate can be tense. Well, and also like Monsanto, you, you've got very powerful corporate interests that don't want this idea to spread. They don't want people to realize that they're getting scammed, both the farmers, you know, and the consumer. I read somewhere that was a, if, if the Monsanto GMO, uh, what is it? The pollen, I guess that blows into your field fertilizes your crop then monsanto now owns the rights to that crop you can't reseed using your own crop it's like insane the way they've set this thing up but and you call it radical but really it's the it's the least radical because it's returning to natural rhythms and natural animal movements and natural interaction between the animals and the plant world and it's you know, I understand what you're saying. It is a radical departure from the current system, but it's a return to something so conservative, you know, in the original sense of the word conservation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because typically conservation organizations have been very much um, and, and especially the town I live in, it's like all conservation land here. They don't want any farming on it. They just want these open fields because that to... You know, a lot of these organizations is ideal, but the Audubon Society um, has realized, um, and actually the Nature Conservancy too, that you have to graze these areas in order for them to be really healthy. And so there's mm. now Audubon certified beef. Um, oh, really? Yeah, bird friendly beef. Um, and and it's you know, it turns out that uh, grasslands actually co-evolved with ruminant grazing animals and. Um, they absolutely have to have their impact. And, you know, we've gotten rid of predators. And so, you know, the idea of rewilding is is nice, but it's how are we going to manage those populations? And, you know, we can we can do we can have a similar impact on the land while growing food for people. And it just turns out to be the healthiest food. Um, and most of our agricultural land is only suited to 
pasture, not to plowing and monocropping. I mean, I would argue none is suited towards that, but, um, but uh, you know, we can also graze cattle in silvopasture um, situations. So where there is some trees and grass too, um, cattle can graze even on, you know, spent uh, fields that already had the corn harvested. So mm. um, there's a lot of ways that we can sort of um, use the same land for multi multi function. So let's let me throw some sort of devil's advocate uh, mm-hmm. uh, points at you. Um, you just said you know that we can use this land for cattle, even land that's already being used for corn or whatever. Um, I imagine one thing that people might think when they hear your arguments is. Uh, we don't have enough land to, to let cattle wander around, right? It's There are already too many people. There's not enough land. Uh, is your system, the system of regenerative agriculture, more land intensive or how, how does that work out? It is more land intensive than feedlot finished cattle, um, but uh, all cattle start on grass. 85% of our beef cattle um, herds right now are grazing on land that we can't crop. Um, mm. And so, you know, do we have the land to have grass-fed beef? It's really, do we have the land to finish our cattle on grass? Instead of feeding them to feedlots, uh, sending them to feedlots, can they just stay on grass? Do we have the land for them to finish on grass? So that's that's really the question. Um, yes, it does take less land to grow corn with chemicals and feed it to um, animals in a feedlot situation. But um, I would argue that I would rather have two and a half acres of regenerative agriculture compared to one acre of extractive chemical agriculture. Um, but then when we look at the numbers, um, and uh, and I'm going off, you know, there isn't a huge amount of science to this, um, but it does appear that we do have the land um, just from from what I've looked into. Um, there's a lot of land that's being grown for ethanol right now. That's a complete waste of time. There is land that's growing corn that's specifically for cattle that could be turned into grazing land. It's prime grazing land. Um there's a lot of underutilized, undergrazed land, um, and uh, and land that's in CRP right now. This restriction program that actually prohibits grazing um, that we could allow grazing on. And so, um, if we were to count up all of that, we do have it appears enough land to grass finish our whole herd of cattle um, that we grow for beef here. Um, now, worldwide, again, it, it, I think it needs to be context-specific. Um, uh, we have interns here, again, from Peru. Growing cattle in Peru is probably not the best idea in a culture, um, you know, I mean, these guys, a lot of them are from the Sacred Valley. They don't have refrigeration. So how are you going to store a cow? You know, that's where guinea pigs are awesome because it's like one meal and, you know, <laughs> no, no leftovers. Right. Um, and uh, and so, it, you know, it just depends on the local culture. I'm a really big believer in this idea of food sovereignty. So mm. um, allowing people to eat, uh, you know, to grow their own culturally appropriate food um, in a healthy way and, um, and, and let them decide. I don't think that, um, you know... A lot of the um, sort of less meat arguments are coming from well-fed 
white people in rich countries where you can go to CVS and get a B12 supplement or um, import avocados and coconut oil and things like that. Um, and so I think we need to be really sensitive to that. And I think we also need to be sensitive to the fact that, um, you know, grass fed meat is more expensive than typical meat. Um, but that doesn't mean that typical meat is maybe a bad choice if you don't have um, access, right? So with my clinician hat on, I could never tell someone only eat organic vegetables or don't eat vegetables, right? Like that would be unethical of me to say that. And I feel the same way about meat. If I'm talking to somebody who, um, you know, is really struggling financially, they want to give the best, the best options to their children. Um, the nutrients in meat are what kids need to grow the iron B12. These things are really hard to get from plants. Um, and, we know that kids who do get extra meat that are food insecure will do better on test scores, um, also physically and behaviorally. And so um, I do think we need another system. Um, I, it's it's wrong that Twinkies are cheaper than apples. Um, you know, I, I think the cost will come down if this is the main system and if we stop subsidizing so much of uh, the grain crop that we have right now. How much meat do we need to get the nutrients that are necessary? You know, because I'm thinking about, like, I spent a lot of time in Asia and mm -hmm. like Thailand, let's say, where, you know, people don't sit down to a steak. You have, uh, you know, a little beef mixed in with the stir fried vegetables and rice and so on. Um, so do we, are you advocating like steak and potatoes and, and that kind of dinner or... Are you just saying there needs to be some meat on a regular basis in order to cover those minimal uh, nutritional needs? Um, both of those things, kind of. Uh, well, in America, beef consumption has actually gone down since 1970. So we're only eating two ounces of beef per person per day. Um, but a lot of people imagine a huge T-bone steak is, you know, Fred Flintstone level meat portions on every America. I mean, even when I travel and, t you know, say I'm Amer from America, they're like, oh, my God, how much meat do you eat? You know, um, so we're actually eating way more chicken, which is way less nutrient dense and worse on the environment than beef is. Mm. Um, we're eating way more processed food. We're eating, we're drinking way more alcohol than we should. I mean, there's all these other foods that are actually causing problems. Um, beef is not causing the problem here. Um, and I looked into the RDA, so the recommended daily allowance for protein. And um, so in the book, I, I walk through why I feel that that's way too low. It's, it's based on some pretty bad studies. Um, and it is the minimum to avoid muscle loss. It is not the optimal level. Mm. Um, and so I, the optimal level, in my opinion, is about twice the RDA, um, depending on your life stage. Someone who's growing or pregnant or someone who's um, older definitely needs more meat than, you know, someone in their prime. Um but uh, but the great thing about protein is that it's the most satiating macronutrient. Um, excuse me, hold on, my phone was ringing. Um, it's the most satiating macronutrient. So if you eat more protein, you're going to be less hungry for other things. Mm. Um, meat is the cheapest way to get those nutrients in, um, and the most efficient way, the least caloric way. So um, 200 calories of steak of three and a half ounces can get you 30 grams of protein. 
you would have to eat about 720 calories worth of beans and rice to get that same amount of protein. And you'd still be lacking in nutrients. You still mm. wouldn't have the same amount that you could get in beef. Mm. Um, and so um, I think everyone's really different. The, uh, their gut health really indicates, you know, how, how strong their guts are to be able to digest plants. Um, for me, I, I'm not very good at uh, eating kale salads and things like that, but um, the rest of my family can do it a lot better than me. So I think it all depends um, individually, but I do think that our pro protein recommendations in general are too low um, right. and that most people you know, if weight is an issue or energy levels or if they're recovering or if they're highly stressed um, or if they're growing or if they're, you know, over 40, basically, they need more protein. And what and do you think about this this all meat diet that some people are talking about? Carnivore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think as a clinician, it's really interesting um, and should be something that we look at and study more because it does appear there's a lot there's a lot of, you know, N equals one case studies of people that, um, you know, meat is easily digested and um, sometimes their bodies are just completely rejecting everything but meat. And it's been very helpful for them. Um, I think, though, you know, to do it just for vanity um, or to. You know, just for fun or whatever. I, I, I don't, I don't think that that's a great idea. I, I'm not into, I, I'm into eating as many foods that don't kill you as possible. Um, <laughs> that's an interesting distinction. And, and so, um, or as many foods that are healthy for you as possible. Right. And so, um, I, I like the idea of variety, but then when we start to get them too hyperpatible is when people over, overeat them. So, right. um, I eat a lot of, a variety of boring foods. <laughs> Yeah, I, I lived in Spain for most of my adult life, and uh, so I got very used to the so-called Mediterranean diet, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, to an American palate can sometimes seem kind of boring. You know, you mentioned boring foods, um, but I came to realize it's not boring at all. It's it's just that, you know, um, I don't know, a ham sandwich in Spain is a, a little bread, a little olive oil, and some really good ham, like three or four slices of really good, you know, you know about Spanish ham, right? It's not yeah, the boiled Iberian ham. Nonsense. I yeah. mean, I've gotten them in Barcelona in like French fry containers. You can just walk around. Yeah. With like oh, yeah. Slices of ham. Yeah, that's yeah. that's the deal. Um, and and so the beauty of it is that the food, the 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 few ingredients are very high quality and taste delicious, as opposed to the American style, which is low quality, lots of sauces, lots of distractions, lots of lettuce and tomato and cheese and more cheese and this and that. And it's not even really cheese. It comes out of a big tube somewhere. It's it's just a totally different approach. And it, it's kind of like, I, I don't know, It's uh, I don't quite have the metaphor, but it, it, it's like, you know, a, a single instrument or a quartet where you can hear every instrument versus the, you know, the chaos of a full orchestra. Mm -hmm. um, and I've come to really appreciate that. I, I miss that being in the States, like being able to taste the individual ingredients in something. And, uh, you know, I wonder what's being hidden in all these sauces and all this packaging. And, you know, it's generally something very unhealthy. Yeah. And I mean, we totally we talk about this in the film that we have um, really smart people working at a lot of these companies making sure that this 
food product is something that's um, maximally rewarding to your brain and addictive. And um, and that's why, you know, once you stop, once you pop, you can't stop with the Pringles Mm. um, or even children's breakfast cereal. And we highlight them in the film. Um, there's something really wrong about that, 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 that the food you can't turn, you, we all can think of certain foods for me, it's potato chips, um, where you just do not have an off switch, right? You can just keep on going. You just need that salt and it's never quite enough. Right. It's just enough to make you reach for another one. And you mentioned breakfast cereals and I want to get back to the point you made about death earlier, because Mm -hmm. I think. This whole argument, I think you're right that it's much deeper than even, you know, the the already quite deep question of what we're eating and how it's produced and how we interact with the land and the economics of it and all that. But I think you're right that it does go deeper. It goes into our relationship with death um, and it goes into our relationship with pleasure. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned um, breakfast cereals. And, you know, one of the I don't know if you talk about this in the book or the film, but that whole breakfast cereal thing comes directly out of sexual repression. Right. With Kellogg. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I actually read the whole biography of Ellen White and how all of that started. And Seventh-day Adventists started um, the dietetics movement. Um, And really movement. Yeah. Um, And so I do talk about them and, um, you know, meat, meat is so powerful in our culture, right? It represents blood and wealth and power and death. Um, And it's something that, you know, both can, uh, you know, some people think will kill you and other people think is medicine. Um, And so it's the most polarizing food we have right now. Um, And it's able to absorb all of this crap that we're mainstream media is putting on it because it's so powerful. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, it, rather than tackling processed food as the main problem, rather than tackling industrial agriculture in Monsanto, rather than tackling our fear of death, let's just not eat cows. Because that's easy and simple. And they kind of look like dogs. And it's probably bad to eat them anyway. Um, because most people only relate to animals as pets and right. don't even realize that they're an animal. So... Um, oh yeah, I could go off on that for a really long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we do have a whole chapter on meat as scapegoat and how did it become that way? And, um, you know, how did it go from a food of necessity to a food of repulsion, um, in so many circles? So back to the, the devil's advocate stuff. What about, oh, it takes uh, so much water to produce every Mm -hmm. pound of beef that it's, uh, terrible for the environment. Yeah. So um, you might be familiar with some of the nutrition studies and how they're really just observational studies and the methodology is just ridiculous, but they made these assumptions, right? And, you know, like, but they mean nothing. Um, A lot of the studies um, against meat environmentally are similar to that. So with the water argument, um, there's different ways to measure water. So one type of water measurement is called green water, and that's rain that's going to fall onto grass, whether or not an animal's eating it or not. Um, And it's the moisture that's held in grass. So it turns out 94% of the water footprint for typical beef and 97% for grass-fed beef is green water. So that's not like a bathtub full of water. That's like if you open your mouth in a rainstorm, that would be like you wasting water too, right? It Mm -hmm. makes no sense at all. 
Um, and so if you were to look at the blue water footprint, so blue water is aquifers, irrigation, you know, water that would be for drinking, things like that. Um, even typical beef is way better than rice, avocados, sugar, walnuts, a lot of foods that, you know, I don't hear rice-free Fridays, you know, and by the way, rice produces tons of methane, um, but we're not vilifying rice. It's so less, you know, nutritious than beef. Um, and so it, but it's easy to put it on cows and it's easy to manipulate these because we want to believe that if we just don't eat meat, then we'll be good. So when I when I read that uh, cows require five times as much water as bison, for example, is that are those calculations made in such a way that they're counting rainwater for cows, but not for bison? That's interesting. I haven't looked at the methodology for how they're calculating for bison. It's really interesting because most bison is feedlot finished in America. Really? Uh, yeah. Mm hmm. And what does um, this mean? Because you, you've mentioned uh, grass-fed a couple times, but you pointed out that all cows are grass-fed. It's a question of how they're finished. Mm -hmm. So when I go to uh, Whole Foods and I spend twice as much for the grass-fed beef yeah. that's labeled grass-fed, yeah. am I just getting ripped off? Is there Does that uh, mean no. anything? Yeah. So there are some certifications for grass fed, although the USDA doesn't recognize it. So but there are third party certifiers that will. Um, so grass fed typically does mean it was finished on grass, um, okay. but it doesn't necessarily mean that those cattle were moved properly. And uh, it could just be that they were like, you know, standing on a, a, the same paddock day in and day out eating hay or you know what I mean? So it's it's uh -huh. it can be a little misleading, and uh, that's why I love you know first and foremost like go meet a farmer, develop a relationship, support them directly so they get the money instead of um, right. all the middlemen and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Before we left uh, Colorado, there's a yak farm right near where we were living, and we went and bought a bunch of yak meat. So we're traveling around with a freezer full of yak meat in our van. <laughs> what does it taste like? It's good. It's very lean. So you have to be careful how you cook it. And if you overcook it, you've, you're basically eating a shoe, Love you know? It. Yeah. Um, but if you slow smoke it, we have a smoker, Traeger. Thank you, Traeger. Um, a slow smoker in our in the van um, that we can run right off our solar-powered batteries. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a good way to do it. Or a quick um, pan sear, you know, just sort of quick fry it at a high mm -hmm. temperature. It's delicious. It's fantastic. Yeah, I've been um, wanting to try a Traeger, by the way. I've emailed them a couple of times. Traeger. Oh, come on, Traeger. Get with Traeger. it. Traeger. Yeah. Well, they support my buddy Kyle Tierman. They've sent him all kinds of uh, a booty, and he actually passed along one, this little portable smoker to me. So oh, they, they they don't respond to me either. It wasn't directly Traeger. It wasn't. No, no. So we got to get Kyle on the job with them. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, uh, last uh, last devil's advocate question yes. for now. Uh, cow farts, methane, yes. you mentioned that. Isn't that destroying the world? No, it's mm. not. Um, all right, so there's, this is, a, it, it might take me a few minutes, so bear with me. But there's two ways to, to look at um, greenhouse gases. And so your viewers can't see this, but maybe you could get the the graphic from my website and mm -hmm. and share that. But behind me, 
I've got this beautiful poster, which is the cattle carbon cycling versus fossil fuel, right? And so cattle as ruminants do emit methane as part of their digestive system. Um, so they're, they're, you know, their their bacteria are breaking everything down and they burp out methane. So that's CH4. Goes into the atmosphere for about 10 years and then it is turns into H2O, water, and CO2, carbon dioxide. Water becomes part of this water cycle. So it gets taken up, you know, it's clouds, it's rain, taken up by, by the land. The CO2 is absorbed by the plants and then the plants give off oxygen, which is what we breathe, and they take down the carbon and there's this really cool thing that happens in the soil where they're dripping little carbon molecules to um, the soil microorganisms that are down there and the fungi. And then those guys are getting the nutrients that the plant needs in exchange for the carbon sugars. Um, and so the fungi are actually mining rocks and bringing those minerals to the plant. Um and so anyway, it's really cool. Some of this carbon gets sequestered in the soil. And actually, the more carbon that's in the soil, the more water it attracts, too. So mm. it's it's a cycle. It's a circular cycle. It's not like just cow farting and then leaving. Um, as opposed to fossil fuels, which are a one-way, there's no cycle that's happening in fossil fuels. So in that scenario, we're taking ancient carbon that's been down there for millions of years and we're pumping it straight up into the atmosphere. Um, it's, it's out of balance. If you're, you know, remember chemistry, you need to have a balance in order to have a, uh, the right equation. And this is just pure extraction that's happening of methane and carbon. Um, and so it turns out tra transportation and um, our consumerism and, you know, everything we're doing as humans is is way more devastating as far as greenhouse gases than bur burping ruminants. But um, people have gotten this so wrong and they've become so reductionist in their thinking um, that uh, the Green Party in Switzerland actually was advocating that they get all the moose be shot because they emit methane. Hmm. Um, so we've got this just really warped, um, inability to look at problems in a holistic way and understand big pictures. Um, we get small pieces of sensational information and everyone's trigger happy on that. Yeah. And, and, um, uh, everyone's working in their individual silos and not communicating because no one can think beyond their silo anymore. So. What, what about the, the interaction between cattle and the deforestation in, in the Amazon, mm -hmm. right? A lot of that, they're cutting down and burning so that the cattle can graze. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I, I know that that soil is not suitable. It, the topsoil washes off, so they have to keep cutting down. So I guess they graze once and then it's gone, right, in the next rain. Yeah, well, I... I don't think we should be cutting down the Amazon, and I don't think we need to be. I think cattle should be on grasslands. But um, but what's happening there is a very complicated policy issue where um, basically people can, if they clear land, they can own it. Mm. And um, most of that land actually is going to generate more money as a soy farm, but you can't farm it as soy right away. Um, because once you burn it down, there's still a lot of underbrush and everything. And so they bring in the cattle to clear the land the rest of the way. Uh -huh. And then they move the cattle off and plant soy. And the majority of that soy is used for soy oil, 
for processed foods. And then the soy crops are actually largely sent to China for um, chicken and pork feed. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Are you, but it's are you, cows destroying the Amazon is, right, is the story right. we're hearing. And yeah, um, it's all for beef, you terrible beef eaters. Right. So America doesn't import any Brazilian beef at all. Oh, really? I thought yeah. McDonald's was like, maybe it's for other parts of McDonald's empire. But I, I remember hearing all the stuff that, you know, they were largely selling that beef to McDonald's. Nope. Really? Mm. Mm-hmm. Are you associated with Alan Savory? Yeah, I, I met him years ago. It was very. I gave a TED talk the same time he did. We were oh. part of the same TED wow. class. Yeah, very interesting guy. And I was very struck by you know earlier when we were talking about land use, uh, and you were going through the different you know ways to calculate it. One thing that we left out was, at least according to what I remember from from his talk, land that is now abandoned desert essentially could be brought back. Uh, by allowing cattle and other ruminants to move through it, uh, actually de-desertification process. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we could actually gain land through these processes that you're talking about. Completely. And that's one of the reasons I I wanted to show a brittle environment like that. And that's why we went to Mexico to Mm. show that because, um, you know, um, Alejandro, the farmer there, does dig in and shows hard pan with his pocket knife. And and the, the land is covered in like this, crust of salt um and it's really just the land trying to protect itself because it's everything's evaporating and it's so hot and everything i never thought Um, of that it's like a scar a mm -hmm. literal scar on the land to protect whatever's still alive under there yeah so underneath is a seed bank that's just waiting for the right conditions to grow again um and so when you bring animals back on um because it used to have pronghorn and elk and i mean so many different grazing animals on it um so we can do that with cattle and um and when you bring them back on their manure drops down and fertilizes it and then dung beetles come and and pull that manure you know down deep into the soil all that kind of magic can happen on the same amount of rainfall um as you know the desertified place next door um but, when you say uh, magic in association with cow dung, I'm thinking about psilocybin mushrooms. It, actually, you'll uh, there's um, a part of the film where Alejandro sees a mushroom in the cow. He's like picking it up and smelling how amazing it smells. And he's like, oh, look, a mushroom. It's just kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of magic magic yeah. happening in cow dung <laughs> around the world. Um yeah, this this is excellent. I'm really glad that you guys are doing this. Did you do you think you'll do another book, another film? Or are you feeling? I know every time I've written a book, I feel like I've just given birth, and I'm like, never again, never again will I do this. So you're in labor right now. How's it feel? Yeah, it's painful. Um, I'm trying to breathe, <laughs> trying to do my breathing. Um, yeah. I, you know, I actually keep talking to James Connolly, my producer, who's actually a huge fan of your work, um, that I want to do, um, Ishmael as a, as a film. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Daniel Quinn er earlier. Yeah. James Connolly. I know him, don't I? Yeah. 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 He comments on your stuff, but he's a producer. He came on board to help with the film. Uh, Is he based in New York city? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I know who he is. Yeah. 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 He's, He's a great guy. I think I had drinks with him one time in New York 
not yeah. too long ago. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so if, if ever I had another chance, I think, um, and actually James is an amazing illustrator. So I think mm. James, I think you need to illustrate and then we need to find an animator and that'll be the next project. Yeah. Ishmael, are you going to have the talking gorilla? Are you going to do all that? I think, I think you have to. <laughs> <laughs> I love that book. That book was recommended to me by Andrew Weil, you know, Dr. Andrew Weil. Oh book, Yeah. Book. Yeah, he and I became friends in the early 90s. And uh, the first night we had dinner together in San Francisco, we just were recommending books to each other. And he highly recommended that to me. And uh, yeah, it, it it's pivotal in my reading. I, that really brought a lot together for me that then, you know, a lot of that, those ideas appeared in Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death and yeah, sort I mean, of informed my worldview. Yeah. Yeah. It's all like once you lock into that worldview and um, I just love that it and Sex at Dawn was great, too, because it was just a continuation of all of these same ideas. Right. Sure. And I think yeah. Sacred Cow is related in that same way, which is probably why you had me on. But, um, you know, I, I just um, I think we need to stop just buying into the system and um recognize that there might be um, ways that people used to do things that might work better. That That's the underlying theme. And and I'm sure you're getting the same, you know, all this media attention. The point that I keep coming back to is, is that um, humans are going to be healthiest and happiest in the environment in which they evolved, just mm -hmm. like any other animal you mentioned before. We're animals, right? Mm-hmm. If you're designing a zoo, you want to design the enclosure in such a way that it mimics the natural environment of that animal. That's mm -hmm. common sense. Why are we not applying that to ourselves? You know? Well, that's why Ishmael is so great because it's a gorilla and you can sort of like hear wacky things from a gorilla. But if you hear wacky things from a, a grown up, you you can dismiss it more easily. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it's good to have some. It's like uh, South Park. They can get away with yeah, things that yeah, they could yeah, never exactly. do mm -hmm. if they were actors. Yeah, right. for sure. Well, listen, Diana, thank you for your time. Uh, I know you're exhausted. You've got to be exhausted with all this, all these balls up in the air. But mm -hmm. I think what you're doing is really important and uh, very helpful. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So everybody needs to... Get a hold of Sacred Cow. It's coming out, when did you say? In August? Uh, the book is July 14th. So Oh, July 14th. Oh, okay, cool. Mm -hmm. All right, and um, it's available everywhere books everywhere. are sold? Yep, and then they can find out um, how to watch the film by going to our website. So it's sacredcow.info. Sacredcow.info. Um, mm-hmm. All right, sweet. Well, thank you very right. much. Thank you. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies, or koozies, or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, 
right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. to the ground. 